A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Increasingly, what we're starting to see is wars popping up all over the place, right? At some point, all of these raging conflicts are going to, they're going to agglomerate. And it seems that we're in the foothills of a similarly global conflagration. And um, it's not clear what quite what the alliances are going to be in all these conflicts and how they're going to turn out like. But it, at, the, at the moment, we haven't yet reached the agglomeration stage. And these conflicts are at some point going to agglomerate into a, into a much wider conflict. Thank you for listening to another special Israel-Gaza edition of Behind the Lines. In these episodes, we're trying to speak to the best informed people about what's happening on the ground and the wider implications of this unfolding conflict. In this episode, it was my great pleasure to be able to speak to Mike Martin, former soldier, academic, military expert, and author of several books, most recently, How to Fight a War, published by Hearst this year. So we started with that question, how should Israel fight its war? And then we moved on to a wider discussion of war in the modern age. You'll want to listen to the end where Mike asks the biggest question of all, is there a threat of global conflict? Mike, welcome to the pod. Hi, Arthur. So the, the last time we spoke was some time ago in the aftermath of Yevgeny Prigozhin's attempted mutiny against mm. Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And it seems a world away because whilst the Ukraine war rumbles on, attention has turned to Israel's conflict with Hamas in Gaza. And my first question was actually to sort of link those two conflicts. Um, at a strategic level, you can see the degree to which uh, Russia gains in some way from attention being turned away from it, from kind of uh, possibly even weapons that were destined for Ukraine from Western powers ending sure. up with Israel. Sure. But is is do you think that then there's there's a strategic issue there or, or is that just a, a happy accident for Russia? 
Uh, I think <clears throat> it is weapons. You know what? I think there's something even more important, which is thought, like the ability to think and how much time you can apply to thinking to a problem and political capital. And that thing has now been stretched. You know, so if you're the Americans or the Brits or whatever, not only are you having to think about what's going on in Ukraine, you're also having to think about an entirely different conflict that has regional implications that I'm sure we're going to get into. Yeah. Um, do, do I think I don't give I have to say, obviously, you know, social media has been a bit of a cesspit over the last couple of weeks. And there was all sorts of stuff flying around about how, you know, Russia had a hand in this and all the rest of it. It seems to me pretty clear that even the Iranians didn't know that Hamas was going to be doing this. So yeah. Russia definitely didn't know. And so I, I don't think that there is that, you know, I don't think Russia had any agency in it. I, I think lots of accidents happen in geopolitics that people can take advantage of. And, and sure, this is this has played well for Russia in that it's a massive distraction from what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, a lot of people have been looking at the challenges that Israel faces. Israel, of course, called for the sort of total evacuation of North Gaza at the immediate aftermath of the sort of Hamas massacre, talked about destroying Hamas altogether. It's not clear whether that remains the objective. But I want to really ask a a very general question, but it comes from the title of your most recent book, How to Fight Mm. a War. So if you are Israel... And you are seeking to uh, destroy Hamas in Gaza. Mm. How do you fight that war? That's, uh, you know, the first chapter in that book is about strategy. And one of the most important things about strategy is having realistic goals. And it's completely unrealistic to think that you can destroy Hamas militarily whilst remaining within the laws of war. Because frankly, to destroy Hamas militarily dug in as they are in an urban area, you would have to kill every last civilian in that urban area. So it's a, it's a, you know, all wars are political, all wars by definition are political, and some are more political than most. And this is a very political war. Yeah, we should talk a bit about the laws of war, because uh, it's, it's a sort of term that people throw around, there's, there are allegations made all the time, and it's not helped by disinformation you know a few days ago it looked possible that israel had accidentally um hit a hospital now it now mm. looks very likely that that was a hamas rocket that misfired yeah. but on in terms of the the big picture how would we understand the laws of war as it res, as it relates to civilian populations for example uh access to water uh, utilities energy those sorts of things yeah i mean it seems quite clear that both sides have committed or are intending to commit war crimes in this war. And, uh, you know, on the Hamas side, that's kind of, we have the evidence for that, right? The murdering of civilians and all the other appalling things that happened on that Saturday, kidnap of civilians, you know, all the rest of it, war crimes. And then, you know, with Israel by rhetoric, right? When they say, we're going to lay siege to Gaza, well, siege is, a, is what's known in international law as collective punishment because you're punishing everyone within that area that you're laying siege to, and there are clearly civilians in that area. And so that is outlawed, specifically collective punishment is outlawed under the Geneva Conventions. So I think, you know, by action and by 
by rhetoric, I think we can safely say that both sides are um, committing or about to commit uh, war crimes. And of course, we then come on to the aerial campaign, which we've had over the last week as well. And then I guess what I would say about that, and again, you know, Hamas as well are in this space, is that one of the things that you have to do when you use lethal force is you have to make proper distinction between military and civilian targets, right? That is a duty upon you as a combatant. Your response also has to be proportional to the level of threat that you face. And you have uh, your targets have to be struck with military necessity and you have to act with humanity. So those are the four things, proportionality, distinction, humanity, uh, and military necessity are really the four guiding principles of the laws of war. And, and if you like, we can use those as a kind of checklist for the actions yeah. of both sides, right? And, 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 and what we see is that certainly Hamas with his activities on that Saturday, n- no distinction between the two, you know, the proportion, so on and so forth, no humanity, no military necessity, so on and so forth, so clearly out with the laws of war. And um, and then we look at the aerial campaign, and I'm sure you've seen these drone shots of Gaza and other aerial, where you see entire neighbourhoods destroyed. Yeah. And I'm not a lawyer, but I I know some things about you know, military military strategy, and and I've also been someone in combat zones who has followed the laws of war and made those due distinctions and called off military actions, decided not to carry them out because of you know yeah. adherence to those principles. And it seems to me that that kind of aerial campaign where you're basically carpet bombing residential areas, I'm sure there were Hamas militants in there, but are you making due distinction there between those militants and civilians who live in those areas? Seems yeah. very difficult to argue that you are. And so, I, you know, if we're looking at this from a kind of legalistic moral point of view, both sides seem to be in a position where they can't defend themselves from that point of view. One of the things I've heard Israelis say about that question and and the kind of wider issue of the the existence of Hamas as a challenge, uh, well, more than a challenge, as a threat to their mm-hmm. their way of life, and and something you hear Israelis say in response to these questions being raised about the sort of the laws of war, the respect for civilians, and so on, is that every time we we Israel have tried to deal with Hamas at a certain point, the Western countries, the US, the UK, France, others pop up and say, oh, you're going too far. The, the, you know, the cost is too great. You, you mm. have to stop now. And 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 the, the, the implicit argument there is that if with your way of doing war, we can't win this war. Now, you, you've referenced there your own experience in combat. And of course, that was in mm. Afghanistan. Um, mm. So I suppose there is a question. Is it possible, particularly the nature of this enemy, which is a it's not a, the armed forces of a state, there are people who are not necessarily in uniform. You don't necessarily mm. know who's a combatant, who isn't. Yeah. Uh, they hide among a population that they're in, you know, cities and mm. so on. But is it possible to win a war in in a in a, a sort of legally correct fashion? I come back to my earlier point about this is a political conflict that has a political solution. It's not a war that has a has a military solution. Yeah. Um, and c- clearly there's a long running history here that, you know, we don't need to recount. I'm sure your listeners will be aware of it, of where there have been periods where it seemed that Israelis and Palestinians would be able to get to peace 
And the current strength of Hamas is as a result of, it seems to me, the collapse of that, that the nearness of that piece, it was certainly within touching distance, wasn't it, in the 90s, yeah. the collapse of those avenues to peace, however unsatisfactory, have probably empowered stronger, more militant elements within um, Palestinian society. So go- going back to Israel and its... Um... It's sort of military strategy. You've identified there that ultimately there is a there's a political there's an overarching political question. Do you, do you think that the the fact that this crisis unfolded has something to do with the political crisis in Israel? I'm not asking you to comment on Israeli politics, but the fact that there were clearly such mm-hmm. severe sort of divisions in the society. You mm-hmm. had sort of reservists who were, mm-hmm. um, you know, on strike and, and those sorts of factors. Yeah. Do you think that contributed to to these sort of unfolding issues? Well, again, we spoke about, you know, bandwidth. You know, as a leader, you work 18-hour days and you've only got so much bandwidth to deal with issues. Yeah. That doesn't matter whether you're the leader of a, you know, a multinational corporation or a country or whatever it's the same right you can you can never deal with all the issues that you should be dealing with so you have to prioritize the issues that you deal with and it seems to me in the recent government there has been a lot of focus on they're obviously trying to pass these new laws about the judiciary there have been protests and as you say reservists um threatening not to serve and all the rest of it and that clearly takes up a lot of bandwidth of the israeli governmental leadership which means that and it seemed clear now they were warned, weren't they, by the Egyptians and mm. various other people. It means that these things come in from the periphery. And because you're not focusing on the threat from Hamas as an important thing, you're worrying about these protests in Tel Aviv, that comes off and you just think, ah, oh, it's OK, I don't need to deal with that. I'm focusing on this main issue. So I definitely think that led to an intelligence failure. But I think there's a much broader Israeli strategic failure because... The collapse of the peace process has led to a degree of Israeli unilateralism around settlements, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, the international community agree that they are illegal settlements, you know, on occupied lands. And the Israelis would disagree with that. But certainly almost all countries in the world agree on that. And that's what international law says. And... I think certainly Netanyahu's rhetoric that he won the election and he's now uh, not not now he isn't but until the crisis he was in 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 uh, in coalition with the sort of ultra right wing. Yeah, uh, I think they felt they could settle this issue of Palestinian Israeli relations unilaterally. Yeah, but it takes two to tango, and you know. There seem to be only a few solutions to the problem. One is that you have a two-state solution, which most people agree on is the way to do it. Uh, Israel could perhaps decide to incorporate those Palestinians into the Israeli state and give them full citizenship rights. Um, They don't want to do that because of the demography. And I can't really see any other solutions beyond that. And that, I think, is a strategic failure because... Where does that road run out? Like, how do they complete that? How do they yeah. get to a point? Like, what's the solution to that problem? It seems very short-sighted. You might be able to run it for a few years and make take some more settlements and then, but it's not going to go away. The problem's not going to go away. So come back to, there's only a political solution to that conflict. So to me, the intelligence failure caused by the sort of acute crisis around Netanyahu governments and sort of legal changes to the state of the Supreme Court and all the rest of it, 
that caused an acute intelligence failure, if you like. But actually, I think there's a much broader strategic failure around that whole unilateral Israeli approach. And and I think it, it seems very clear that Netanyahu is going to suffer. Once they've dealt with this crisis, Netanyahu will be kicked out of office immediately because the Israeli public, his whole shtick was, I'm going to keep you safe and this is how. And he's totally failed to do that. In fact, yeah. he's created the opposite. Yeah, indeed, indeed. In a way, though, one could make the argument that this crisis shows how um, terrorism can achieve certain objectives in the sense that, to clarify for anybody who could possibly misunderstand me, this is not in any way to suggest that terrorism is good or should be supported, simply that as a result of what Hamas is doing, people are recognising the, the failure of a certain political strategy that was being pursued by Netanyahu. So is this because I mean, terrorism, terrorism exists to some extent, because it achieves aims. So is this an example of terrorism working? It does achieve aims, which is why organisations like the BBC and other broadcasters, by the way, in the UK don't use the word terrorism. Yeah, because it has that pejorative slant. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time teaching militaries how to understand conflicts. And I say, look, words like terrorist are very unhelpful because they immediately give you a slant on a problem. And one way to not solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem is to take a moralistic slant on it. Whatever you feel and whatever you feel is a moralistic slant on it, particularly as an outsider, you must maintain, in my opinion, impeccable neutrality about that conflict if you really want to discuss it in terms that is useful to solving it. And that's at least what I try to strive to do, I'm sure. I'm sure people will find fault with the, you know, the things that we're saying on this podcast, but actions, you know, you call it terrorism, militancy, whatever, um, clearly does have results, right? The IRA in the UK um, achieved goals, you know, there's, and now Sinn Féin are very powerful, both North and South in Ireland, right? And they're, you know, uh, their goal of a unified Ireland is... Not on the cards in the short term, but it's definitely not off the cards, right? No. And that, you know, and they definitely... It's a foreseeable outcome, it's certainly. It's a foreseeable the current, outcome, right? politics. And the terrorism forced people to come to talk about it. Do we think yeah. that the British government would have devoted so much money and resources to Northern Ireland had they had, you know, things not being blown up there? No, I doubt it yeah. very much. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that violence... You know, ultimately, violence is communication, right? It's on the political spectrum. It's just a way of when you've really been shouting very hard and people aren't listening to you, it's a way of upping the ante. And again, this is not, I am not at all obviously advocating any sort of violence. I think democracy and discussion is the way to do things. But clearly, when people feel that it's a reason, not an excuse. People use terrorism when they feel that they have no other avenues to raise issues. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The, the case studies of, of terrorist movements um, being defeated entirely through military means are very limited, aren't they? I mean, you could argue that Al-Qaeda was pretty much dismantled after yeah. 9-11. I mean, there's a few remnants, right? But basically, it's, it's dead. Yeah. Now, notice that wasn't defeated by conventional military action, right? Al-Qaeda was dismantled by a lot of intelligence work to find out where individual leaders were and then they were targeted with drones or special forces raids. So it was a pinprick taking out each individual mm. person in a worldwide Al-Qaeda network. And, you know, the raid on bin Laden, right, is the perfect example of yeah. that. He was the big prize. And they haven't got all of them, but they've diminished that network to such an extent and shut down the financing that went with it that they've effectively ceased to operate as an organization but it wasn't that's not conventional military force that's highly precise yeah targeting so yeah there's an example where it did work but the you know the british army went into northern ireland for 37 years and t- within a conventional sense patrolling vehicle checkpoints or it totally failed to dent the ira probably created six times as many ira recruits with their heavy-handed actions right we yeah. we we bolstered the ira by going in there in a conventional sense it was only ever to hold the line while the political process took root and again all that time while the british government was calling them terrorists and all the rest of it and you know in the 80s refusing to have them on tv do you remember that silly where they couldn't have their voices so they dubbed their yes. voices and all this rubbish and the whole time the whole time that was going on and the SAS were ambushing their leaders and whatever. The whole yeah. time that was going on, MI5 and MI6 were talking to them. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. And deliberately, the British government didn't kill the senior leadership or arrest the senior leadership of the IRA. And they allowed this fiction to extend that there was Sinn Féin, which is a political party, and then there was the IRA and there were separate things. And they allowed that fiction to carry on because they knew that these were the people eventually who were going to deliver peace. Yeah. So I suppose that takes us back to to Israel. Now, on on one level, you can understand any society that's faced such a a sort of tragedy on almost unimaginable scale and and the particular horror of the sort of the ghastly events that unfolded. Um, You can understand the the desire to lash back. But I guess... 100%. There's a couple of points, it seems to me, that arise from it. One is is, is the sort of that long-term strategic goal, which is ultimately that you you can't make the Palestinian issue go away, mm. and and you know killing lots of Hamas leaders doesn't actually solve the bigger problem. But there's probably also creates this, more, probably creates more yeah, Hamas leaders. Yeah, it, you can imagine it just drive it drives this that. current campaign. Yeah, with, is creating more people who are committed for the rest of their lives to fighting Israel. Yeah. And then the, the the related question, which is which seems like a fairly specific one, I'd be interested in your views for a military uh, kind of strategy, 
is this question of hostages. Now, of course, in that there have been case studies of individual Israelis being held in Gaza, who've been held for, for several years in one case and then traded for, for a thousand prisoners and so on. Uh, but this is this is something quite different, isn't it? You've got you've got roughly 200, I think, the sort of the, the best guess. Uh, and and that represents a huge kind of strategic uh, risk for the Israelis. Do you how how do you think that changes the calculation? But yeah. Certainly in the first week of the crisis, mm. like, I, I, you know, some of the European diplomats were saying, you know, we, we sort of get this feeling from the Israelis, because obviously it's not just Israelis, there's also Brits, American, you know, yeah. all the different all nationalities. Of, there was this rave party, wasn't there, where sort of, yeah. you know, foreigners were there and and diplomats of those countries whose citizens have also been kidnapped and taken to, were sort of quite, they were like, the Israelis don't seem to care about, our, like such was their understandable blind fury and rage at what yeah. had happened. At these kind of reprehensible acts that 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 uh, Hamas had committed. By the way, not just Hamas, but all sorts of people. Ha- it turned out to be much bigger than they thought it would be. Yes. Hamas just thought it'd be a small thing, and then they realised that the Israelis had taken their f- finger off the button or finger off the pulse so much down there that they could rampage and loads of people streamed across the border. Yeah. Um, but sorry, that's just an aside. I mean, that's an uh, important point, isn't it? That it was a it was a a kind of a catastrophic success from their perspective that they had right. almost hadn't right. planned for. Right. And so I wonder whether, yeah, I I mean, if Israel cared about those, you know, bringing back those hostages alive, every single one of them, it would be make it would just be so impossible to conduct that operation. Hmm. Absolutely impossible. But I'm I'm not convinced. I think we're yeah. seeing a shift, aren't we, in Israeli behaviour? Cle- clearly, initially, you know, day one, they said, right, ground invasion, we're going in. And here we are, however many days later it is, and we still haven't seen one. No. And it seems clear to me that they've the rage, the understandable rage has subsided a little bit. And clearly the Americans have been talking to them and the Brit, you know, I think other people have been talking to them in the background and saying, what are your options here? What yeah. are your options? Going in doesn't achieve anything. You'll probably lose thousands of troops. Tens of thousands of Gazans will die. You'll create more enemies and then you'll pull out and it'll just be the same. What are your options? What are your options? What are your options? Yeah. So I think that's definitely led to a, you know, they're thinking long and hard about how to, I mean, they're, they're in an absolute conundrum, basically. Yeah. Very difficult problem to solve. And what 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 do you think of the, the sort of wider regional um, questions because on, on one level people talk about the threat of escalation and that's very real and of course you you know that the there there are plenty of actors in the region notably those who are sort of in the Iranian camp particularly Hezbollah who'd, who'd love to take the excuse to mm. to uh to sort of have a go at Israel but having mm. said all of that you know um you can see the reasons why Iran can make a rational choice not to get dragged in. But is there a rational argument that Israel needs to kind of once and for all secure itself from these external threats? So should it sort of take out Hezbollah's capability? Should it strike at Iran? But you can't take out Hezbollah's capability. It's dug into the ground. Um, but <laughs> arguably, you if you're willing to, you know, it depends on how much how much sort of ordnance you're willing to drop from the sky, isn't it? I guess the assumption that underpins that is that at some point, Western nations will cut off diplomatic relations with Israel if it commits such blatant war crimes. But that is, I guess, an assumption that I have. 
you know yeah. we, that that is an assumption to be tested but like that for me is an assumption that underpins my arguments the degree of violence you need bombing to take out hezbollah's military capability i mean hezbollah are much more capable than hamas right in military yeah. terms so that degree of violence would not be commensurate with proper distinction between military and civilian targets proportionality all the rest of it mm. you see tens of thousands of civilians killed i'm my assumption is that the British government would not stand by and allow that to happen, or certainly would not support Israel. Yeah. Um, to the degree that it is now, if that were to happen, one can say to the British and American governments, and they are now talking much more about civilian casualties, but initially they didn't even mention that stuff. Yeah. Which is which is partly, I think, because you know, of domestic politics. So in America, Biden did not want to be outflanked by Trump. Yeah. So he knew that if he went all in, in support of Israel, Trump wouldn't be able to outflank him. But then Trump gave an utterly bizarre speech because years ago, Netanyahu, like, pissed him off about something. So he then started going on about how the Israelis were weak and they allowed it to happen. That gave Biden a lot more space to start talking yeah. about civilian casualties. It's obviously sad that, they're not taking a moral stand. They're kind of viewing it through the prism of the re-election next year. But, and then of course in the UK, we've got a problem where the Labour Party, until you know recently, you know, had huge problems with anti-Semitism. Hmm. So it had absolutely no choice but to give full-throated support to Israel. And even now, you see, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think the Labour Party is better than this when they're asked. Do, you know, do you think that Israel is you know, potentially committing war crimes with its bombing and talking about mm. sieges and stuff, and they just go on about Israel's right to defend itself? And it's like, yeah, yeah Israel has the right to defend itself. Of course it does. That doesn't obviate the need to follow the rules of war. Right. Like, you know, the Labour Party is better than that. But sure. they're doing it because they realise that the, the the Tories will start attacking them with the, the stain of anti-Semitism, right? And that's yeah. why the Tories have taken a totally unequivocal we support Israel no matter what line because they're trying to force the Labour Party into a difficult yeah. position, right? So both the US and the UK, their whole response to this conflict has been dictated by their own domestic politics, which is sad because I think that in matters of warfare and life and death, you should take moral principled stands. Yeah. Um, because of the seriousness of what's going on. We're not kind of squabbling here over, you know, tax rises or something. This is important stuff. Much, um, yes, much bigger. And the consequences and, uh, are, are so dying. much better. People are dying. What about um, Iran? Uh, I guess the I Iran has the the ability to say, we don't think Israel should exist, but of course they're not they're not right there. So they can act through proxies that mm. the cost to them are, are lower. Yes, Israel has carried mm. out various sort of assassination campaigns and so on, but clearly Israel is not, yeah. not going to invade Iran or whatever, no. not very mm. unlikely to carry out airstrikes unless there was some really kind of extreme situation. Um, is this something that Israel could do to deter Iran or is it already doing that? Are we already living in this deterrence? Nukes, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they have the nukes. It doesn't seem to have stopped Iran from supplying Hezbollah and, and or maybe it's stopped them from doing yeah, it. Yeah, but there's a threshold, isn't there? I don't know. I mean, in the initial week after the Hamas atrocity, I would not be at all surprised. I mean, obviously, I've got no idea, but I would not mm. be at all surprised if the Israelis rang up the Iranians and said, if anything crosses our border, we're going to nuke you. That's it. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, such was their yeah. rage and fury and focus on, you know, um, 
Gaza. And nuclear weapons are a way of, and we've seen it, haven't we, in Ukraine? Mm. Nuclear weapons are a way of drawing big red lines to create strategic space to do things, right? Yeah. So that would be a sensible use of Israeli, you know, sensible in terms of a realist approach to, you know, military strategy to warn Iran not to get involved. Otherwise, that that's it. We're nuking you. And that gives them then space to deal with, deal with in inverted commas, yeah. Gaza in a way that means they don't have to worry about other other problems. So obviously I have no idea, but that's probably what I would be thinking if I was in the Israeli government. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly there's a rational argument there. And it's interesting because this this shows this sort of throws up the the the, the value and the, the, the rational case for, for a nuclear deterrent, which, of course, yeah. you could argue that in a different way, the Ukraine war has shown up, you know, the, the inability or the limits to what Western powers can do about Russia's actions. Exactly. Reminds us all of the amazing value of having having a massive nuclear arsenal. Well, you don't need a massive one. You just need a minimum credible deterrent with yeah. a with a second strike capability. Yeah. That's it. Right. Yeah. That's it. And that's what the UK has, that's what France has, you know, 200 warheads, continuous at sea deterrents, guaranteed second strike, credible. That's it. You don't yeah. need 5,000 nuclear warheads. No. Um so I suppose then um it'd be interesting to speculate had if Iran had got to a stage where you might believe it's possible they've got nukes, uh, what would the calculation be for Israel? Isn't it? Or is it that you just can't... It's commonly it accepted, isn't it, that Israel's got nukes? No, it is, Israel has nukes. But I'm, I'm saying, what I'm yeah. saying is if Iran had got yeah. to that, got to the stage where they're sort of, verge, you know, is it, in, in the end, is it is that a sort of game over moment for Israel? Well, but that's why everyone's trying to stop Iran getting nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't, I can't think through the psychology of how that would play out. Yeah, can you? I does. I can't see how you how that. Because what you want in in with nuclear weapons is you want stable nuclear systems, right? Yes. Where so Russia and the United States for a long time had a stable deterrent system of nuclear yeah. deterrents, right? It, it is possible that Iran and Israel could uh, form a stable mutual nuclear deterrent system, but it seems quite difficult when there's lots of proxies in the region. It seems quite difficult when one country doesn't accept the other's right to exist. It seems quite, you know, like the reason the Soviet US system was stable was because there was all sorts of like, they recognized each other. They were both yeah. on the security council. There was lots of structures. And there, were, there were special psychology lines of communication to, to manage that. de-escalation and all of that. And I just don't think that that, but even aside from the kind of practical stuff, like the hotline on the desk. Yeah. The psychological, the structures that we put around mm. these things, like if if Iran doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist, that's a problem when they've both got nuclear weapons. Yes. Right? That's a much bigger problem than if they both recognize that they're countries and they're just having a spat over different ideologies for running the world or something like it was yeah. in the Cold War. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's much yeah. more existential. Yeah. Definitely. Whereas the US and the Soviets were never going to invade each other. Finally, uh, you know, we we started with sort of briefly mentioning Ukraine and the degree to which, uh, probably, probably as a bandwidth problem, that this this affects the conflict in Ukraine. 
let's just talk about that briefly because it, it is sometimes since, since we've we've chatted obviously the um the ukraine's counteroffensive continues it it's ended up perhaps in some respects not achieving that the aims that some hope for it but also it's achieved a lot in other you know i think it's sort of what's happened in crimea the 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 russian black sea fleet has been sort of denied access to mm. crimea and so on mm. what what's your what's your sort of stock take on on where we're at at the moment in that space as as sort of winter is is approaching well there's still a bit of time for uh a breakthrough but it does seem increasingly unlikely that there's going to be some sort of mass breakout of the style mm. of the ones that we saw last year in Kharkiv yeah and in Kherson in the south i think the ukrainians have taken quite a lot of territory I think they've smashed up the Russian logistics. As you said, they've kind of made Crimea unsafe now. Yeah. They've just got these long-range missiles from the United States. They've got cruise missiles from the UK. By all accounts, the Russian forces are in an absolute state in um, in Ukraine in terms of equipment, and they're putting mm. out a lot less shells and all the rest of it. I think there's a real danger now for Ukraine as they go into the presidential election year that it becomes a bit of a political football in the US. I mean, look at the US. They know they can't elect a speaker yep. in the House of Representatives. Like it's just chaos. They almost had a, you know, they have this debt ceiling thing. Mm. That, that almost, they almost, you know, unable to pay the federal budget. You know, it's, US politics is highly volatile, very messy. And so, and now, of course, and we've missed a war, right? We haven't even mentioned the Azerbaijan. Armenia, yep. Nagorno-Karabakh, like that was a kind of a a conclusion to a frozen conflict. Um, but that's that's been caused by Ukraine, right? Because of collapsing Russian influence. Yes. Russia was no longer able to support Armenia in that conflict. And the Azerbaijan, supported by Turkey, was able to to to, to succeed in its goals. So I think we're gonna see other bits of other conflicts in the ex-Russian space as Russian power collapses. Um, but I think increasingly what we're starting to see is wars popping up all over the place, right? Yeah. We had Sudan, we've had a whole bunch of coups in West Africa. Um, we've had obviously Ukraine, we've now had Israel, Hamas, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? This is that I just reeled off there like the last six months or something. Yeah. Um, so increasingly, we're seeing a world that is becoming more and more conflict ridden. And at some point, all of these raging conflicts are going to, they're going to agglomerate into a bit like World War II was a series of disconnected conflicts that started for local reasons or local rivalries or whatever. And then when World War II started, they then split into two align, you know, the Axis yeah. and the Allies, and then they yeah. were fought. And it seems that we're in the foothills of a similarly global conflagration. And um, it's not clear what quite what the alliances are going to be in all these conflicts and how they're going to turn out like. But it, at, the, at the moment, we haven't yet reached the agglomeration stage. And these conflicts are at some point going to agglomerate into a into a much wider conflict uh, is my opinion for where we're heading and then so that's how you know the russia ukraine thing will get subsumed into that into that wider that wider narrative well that feels like um the moment to say that 
we'll have to keep an eye on this and keep talking about it but to thank you for joining me for today's episode thanks thank you for listening to this episode of behind the lines if you want to make sure you don't miss any future episodes why not subscribe it won't cost you anything and spread the word if you find these podcasts useful Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the music is by Matty Benbrook. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.